Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to take a little break from our study in the book of Ruth for just this Sunday, just to look at what the Word of God would say to us on Father's Day. And happy Father's Day. Um, we, we don't typically stop what we're doing uh, on a Sunday morning as we've been going through a sermon series. We don't typically stop and uh, preach on a topic. A year ago, we, we went through a Mother's Day sermon, and we hadn't up until that point. We didn't do one this year. Uh, we have never done a Father's Day sermon, and that's intentional for two reasons. The first reason is when we launched the church, I had one child. Uh, she was two years old. Uh, I did not know what being a father looked like practically, biblically. I could probably preach on it, but I didn't have any wisdom experientially to back that up. Still really don't. Don't know what I'm doing in this, but uh, I, I don't never felt qualified, don't feel qualified to preach from an experiential standpoint. And so praise God, we preach from the Bible and not from our own opinions or our own practical understanding. But the second reason that we have just kind of strayed from Mother's Day and Father's Day sermons is a, a very practical one. These, these days are very joyful days, and they're also, they can be incredibly sad days. Uh, they're, they're joyful days, some of us are celebrating uh, for the very first time, Father's Day, and Brother Ben, for the very first time ever. And if the Jordans were still here with us, they'd be celebrating the very first Father's Day. If the Spinks were still here, they'd be celebrating the very first Father's Day. There's a lot of joy in these moments, and it's rightfully so. But there's a lot of sadness as well. Father's Day can highlight for many fathers, looking back on their experience in raising their children, they can see places that they regret. Uh, things that they said, things that they did. It can just kind of be a spotlight on their failures and draw attention uh, to fatherhood being very difficult in the past. Many men have a desire to be a father, but have not been able to have children yet. They want to celebrate this day as fathers, but they haven't been able to have children. Many men desire to be married. They don't have a spouse yet. They want to be able to have children. They don't have a spouse, and they're waiting on God to provide. And it just is a day that kind of highlights and spotlights what you don't have. And some men, even in our church, have gone through miscarriages with their wives. That's a difficult day to spotlight the loss. These are hard days. They're incredibly joyful days, but they're also incredibly sad days. So that's why we, we typically just keep going through our sermon series. But I wanted to spotlight today what the Bible says to men specifically. And I felt it most appropriate as we've been going through the book of Ruth. We've been seeing the character of a godly man on display with Boaz. And I thought this morning as I thought through Father's Day, I didn't want to just narrow into fathers and just speak only to them. I want to speak in such a way that addresses everyone. And we're going to do so from Ephesians chapter 5. And the reality is there are so many places in the Bible that speak to being a father and to parenting, but there's a relationship that's greater than a father that's in the Bible. There's a relationship greater than being a father to your children in the institute of the, of the family. And that relationship is being a husband to your wife. The greatest thing that you can do as a father for your children is to love their mother well. That's the greatest thing that you can do for your children. Love her in front of them, love her well, and then just bend out that love to your kids as well. If you 
are parenting your children well, but you do not have biblical Christ-like love for your, husband, for your wife, as a husband, you're failing. And so this morning, I, I thought, instead of just staring at the parenting aspect, let's go to what it means to be a godly husband. And already, you might think, well, I'm not a man, so this doesn't apply to me. Or uh, I'm not a husband, so this doesn't apply to me. So let me just, uh, by way of introduction, let me just try and encourage you, wherever you're at, I believe that this sermon can be and should be very impactful in your soul and in your life. Number one, if you're a man and you're not married, this matters. If you're a man and you're here and you're not married, as a man, you are called to lead in love exactly the way that we're going to talk about this morning. We're just called, you're called to lead in different relationships, different ways in the relationships that you're given, but you're called to lead the exact same way and love the exact same way. And you can listen to hear Jesus' example to you of what love looks like in a leadership position, in a relationship to lead somebody in love, and you can live that out. If you're a man who is not married, it matters. This is what you should be like. This is what you're going to be called to be if you are married, if the Lord would give you a spouse. Now, if you're a man here, second category, if you're a man here and you have no desire to be married, you can say, well, this isn't for me. Well, no, it still works. Because again, these, what we're looking at, these principles in marriage also fit in other relationships just in differing ways. Just because you're not a husband doesn't mean that you don't need to lead and love and provide and protect for those around you and encourage them. As a man, God has called us to do that. So if you are a man here today, there's no reason that this shouldn't pertain to you in some way, shape, or form. If you're a woman here and you are a wife, you should be listening for ways that you can encourage your husband in how he's living these things out in your marriage. You can encourage him. You can say, good job, excel still more, and you can pray where there's maybe deficiencies. You can encourage him in places where he's doing well, and you can pray for those areas where he's not and encourage him when you see growth. If you're a woman here who wants to be married and is not married yet, first of all, I just want to say that's a good desire to have. It's a good desire. It's a good thing to want to be married. I love marriage. Marriage is amazing. I wish I had been born married. I just... Never had a bad day of marriage. I love marriage so much. I'll, I'll, 10 years, this Thursday, is the 20th? 10 years, I think it's Thursday. 10-year uh, anniversary. And there's not a day in those 10 years, 365 times 10, that should be easy, but I don't do math. Add a zero to something. Not a day that I haven't just woken up so incredibly blessed, so incredibly, I, marriage is the best, I love it. It's amazing. But if you're a woman here and you desire to be married, can I plead with you? Listen to this. If you don't want to listen to anything else, listen to this. There is a fate worse than being married. There is a fate, or I'm sorry, there is a fate worse than not being married. You're welcome. I just undid my 365 days times 10. There is a fate that is worse than not being married. If you're here this morning and all you're saying is, God, I want a spouse there is a fate that is worse than not getting that prayer, that answer. And that is marrying somebody who doesn't look like this. I just plead with you for all of my sisters in the Lord who are not married and desire to be married, don't settle for anybody who does not look like this. Because if you marry a man who does not look like this, you're going to wish you didn't get married. 
So wanting to be married is a very good thing. But you have to see who you should be marrying. And so Ephesians chapter 5 will tell you exactly who you should marry, the kind of man you should marry. Okay, last category. You're a woman here who's not married but doesn't have a desire to be married. That's okay too. Totally fine. But here's my encouragement to you. You can still encourage those who are looking to be married and be like Naomi is to Ruth, right? Hey, stay with Boaz. That's the guy you want to be with. Hang out with him. You can give wisdom and perception to people around you with discernment to say, hey, that's a good guy. Stay away from that guy. So no matter who you are, no matter what season of life you're in, this text absolutely matters for your life. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. Let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 5, we're just going to look at verses 25 through 32. And we're going to fly through this passage because we're going to just run out of time. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 32. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Father, I pray that you would just supernaturally elongate our time, give us an ability to dive deeply into these verses, and that every single soul that's here would see something of who they are to be, who they are to look for, who they are to champion others in looking for, And ultimately, may it all point us back to the love that you have for us, which is the model for being a good husband, being a godly leader, and ultimately loving others in any relationship that we are in with Christ-like love. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This passage is the most complete explanation of our duties as a husband And since not one of us has fully plumbed the depths of the meaning of these verses and fully lived out all of its imperatives in our lives, we're going to take time today to try our best to go deeply into these verses and see where we need to grow and where we can excel still more. And right from the outset, we need to make sure that we understand the flow of Ephesians because if we don't, we're going to misunderstand what these verses are calling us to do and how they're calling us to do them. So you need to know... This is introduction part two, but you need to know the flow of the book of Ephesians or else you will put what the gospel produces before what the gospel requires. And you're going to get heresy out of this text, okay? So I want to make sure that you are well informed from these verses what to do and what not to do, okay? Ephesians, broken down into two sections, like every other epistle in the Bible. In the New Testament, every single letter is broken up into two sections, Every single epistle breaks up almost evenly, neatly. Ephesians does. First three chapters are indicatives of who we are in Christ. The next three chapters are imperatives of what we do now that we are in Christ, now that we are Christ's own family. 
But it's always that way. It's orthodoxy, what we know to be true about our relationship with Christ based on his work, and orthopraxy, now how we live, how we work, what we do based on what Jesus has done. If you flip that around, can you see the problem? If you flip that around, you get what Jesus does based on what we've done. That's not the foundation of what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't work because we've worked. We work because Jesus worked on our behalf. So Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 literally only contain one imperative. It's chapter 2, verse 11, and it's the word remember, call to mind. There's only one command in three chapters from Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Because Paul is not telling you to do anything. He's telling you what Jesus has done. Here's the gospel. Here's what Jesus has done for you. And he lays it out very specifically. In in fact, if you go back to chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, you will see this. The end of chapter 1, the first grand indicative of the book of Ephesians in our lives is chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. God put all things at subjection under Jesus' feet, gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus is the head over all things, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the first grand indicative of chapter 1 is that Jesus is the head of the church. We have not been told anything to do yet. Just Jesus is the head of the church based on who he is and what he has done, not who we are. The second grand indicative is chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So we have Jesus being the head of the church. Second grand indicative is in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So Jesus is head over the church. You are graciously a part of that church and you're brought into unity with Christ in that church. Again, no imperatives. No, do this and you'll become that. It's just Jesus has done the work. You believe that work. You're a part of that work. Jesus has done the work. The last imperative, chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the last indicative uh, in chapter 3 is everything that happens is done to the glory of God. And you guys remember even in chapter 1 to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's all about the glory of God. So, there's three main indicatives in Ephesians. First is Jesus is head of the church. Second is we are brought in and unified in the church under Jesus' headship. We submit to Him. And the third is that brings glory to God. We, we desire to bring glory to God. All those things happen because of the gospel. Now, chapter 4, 5, and 6 is Paul kind of answering a question that we would have is, what does this look like? How do we live this out? Based on what God has done and giving you grace and saving you, this is how you should live. Not live this way in order to get saved. It's live this way because you have been saved. That's where we lead to the second half. And notice the second half. Just go to where our passage begins in chapter 5, verse 22. Our passage begins with a place in our culture that some people would just stand up and walk out if they heard this verse. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord, or submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. That word submit is like a curse word in our culture. But if you understand it in context, Paul just laid out, Jesus is head of the church. He's head of the church. And just as the church has a head, so the family has a head. That's, that's all this is. This has nothing to do with inferiority. 
or superiority. This has nothing to do with ability. This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with the grand indicative of Jesus' head over the church, and so too, husbands are head in their, their households. You need to have one head, right? Anything with two heads, either you chop off the one head or you put the thing behind glass and stare at it and pay money to have people see it. Like the, the, Things don't have two heads. So Jesus is the head of the church. So too, husbands are the head of the wife. Not because of inferiority. It's because of the pattern that God has given. This is all about Jesus and his church. That's what headship is about. So when we get to husbands leading their wives, it's not about lordship. It's not about dictatorship. It's about love. It's about headship and leading in love. So the husband is the head of the wife. Husbands, let me speak to you for just one second. We are leaders whether or not we know that or we live that out. We are the head of our household. We may be good leaders. We may be poor leaders. But no matter what, we are leading. If there's a problem in your marriage, you might not bear all the guilt, but you bear all of the responsibility. You bear all of the responsibility as a husband. You are the leader. And we don't get to choose how we lead. We've been given a model, and that model is Jesus. Jesus has given us five ways in which we are to lead in our household. And we're just going to take these one at a time as we go through this. Five ways that God, God has called us to lead as men, specifically as husbands in the home, but God has called us to lead in love in these ways as a man, period. We'll confine it to the home here, as Paul does in Ephesians chapter 5. Number one, we've been called to lead in love. We've been called to lead in love. This is verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives. It's a command. Love your wives. Now, we need to define what love is because our culture, our context around us, defines love as an emotion, as a feeling. We even hear very strange words like, I fell in love. Well, if you can fall into love, you can fall out of love. If love is that fickle, then who knows if your marriage is going to last. Um, people say things all the time. This thing is bigger than the two of us. We just, we're just in love. This thing's bigger than the two of us. Or my personal favorite, the heart wants what the heart wants, which I don't even know what that means. The heart just wants what the heart wants. There's this strange idea of, of Cupid. Uh, we, we as a family, I'm not ashamed to say, we're a very nerdy family, so we, for fun, watch Jeopardy as a family. And so we were watching uh, Teen Jeopardy, trying to give my kids a, a chance. And uh, this little picture shows up. Uh, who is this mythic character, this little baby with a bow and arrow? And I said, that's Cupid. And my daughter said, why isn't he wearing clothes? <laughs> Amen, I don't know. This idea of Cupid, this idea of you just get struck with an emotion. It just hits you. I just love this person. That idea is not biblical love, and if that is what true love is, then no marriage is, is safe. No marriage is safe if that's what love is, because what if you wake up one day and you're not in love anymore? That's not biblical love. This is why our culture has created this idea of the one, right? We've created this idea of the one because 
Maybe if we just have the one, this idea of we've got the one in our mind, then that's the person that we were destined to marry, and therefore we found that person, and we can't fall out of love. But the one has no objectivity to it. People ask me, when did you know Hannah was the one? And the answer that I usually give, because it's usually younger people that are asking me that, is when I said I do. When I said I do, she's the one. Could have married anybody before that. I didn't, there was not just one person. Now, of course, they're looking for the romantic. When did you really know? And, and I can give you that answer, too. But there is no just one person. Once you're married, yes, there is. But before that, if you're a man, you have two qualifications. You can marry, you, you must marry a woman. And if you're a professing believer, she must be a professing believer. Those are your two qualifications. The Bible says nothing else. In fact, next week, we're going to get into how Ruth goes and proposes to Boaz. How weird is that? That Ruth is going to go and say, would you please marry me? Whoa, time out, Ruth. That's being unbiblical. Like, this is going to be crazy. So love. There's no just one. That's why we invented this idea of the one, because maybe that will get us stuck. No, that's not the case. What is biblical love? My favorite definition comes from a man named Vodi Bauckham. Great book. I would encourage all of you to read. It's called What He Must Be If He Is to Marry My Daughter. And I've read that book three times, and I'm going to do it as a yearly read up until the day that I have a shotgun and I stand at my front porch, and my daughter's about 72, and I'm ready to let her go on her first date. So uh, this is just, uh, it's a great book, and this is my favorite definition of love. Love is an act of the will, number one, accompanied by emotion, number two, which leads to action on behalf of its object, number three. It's three parts. Love is an act of the will, first and foremost. Biblical love is an act of the will. It's a choice that you make. But that's not the end of the definition, because love is not a void of emotions. It has emotions inside of it. It's just that emotions don't lead it. Love is, first and foremost, an act of the will. Secondly, it's accompanied by emotions. It has emotions attached to it. It's just not led by emotions. And then number three, it doesn't stop there. It's an, it's an act of the will. It's a choice that you make. It's accompanied by emotion, but it leads you to action. It leads you to serve and to act on behalf of the object that you love. It's an act of the will. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With all your mind, you get to choose. You make the decision. You calculate the risks, and you say, I choose. Before you get married, you're just looking for who you want to say, I do with and to. God has given us an amazing privilege. We get to choose who we love. And then marriage is all about loving who you chose. That's what it is. You choose who you love before you get married, and then when you get married, you just love who you chose. But it's an act of the will. It's an act of the will. It leads, first and foremost, with an act of the will. Secondly, it's accompanied by emotion. It's not led by emotion, and it's also not void of emotion. It's not led by emotion. You don't buy into the myth of, I feel this way, therefore I have to do this. No, it's not led by emotion. But it's also not void of emotion. And men, if I can just speak to us as men, sometimes I even hear wives say, well, no, no, they're, they're just an engineering type. Right? They did, I mean, they're not that emotional. They just have, they're that engineering type. They don't, no, men are emotional. It's just a matter of what are they most emotional about. Um, I know some men who, in talking about their wife, they'd say, yes, I love her, she's great, no emotion whatsoever. And then I shoot hoops with them. 
And when they miss a free throw, oh, man, they throw the, the ball. They don't just sit there and go, oh, I must have missed it a little bit to the left. No, they, they are infuriated. Men are emotional. Uh, my wife just read a book that made the case scientifically and physiologically that men are actually more emotional than women are. Just in a very different way. But men are emotional. So love in, involves emotion. Don't be emotionless. It's just not led by emotion. So Jesus says, first and foremost, to us, by example, we need to love our wives just as Christ loved the church. He is the example for it. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But just right off the bat, we have two applications we can see here. Two things, two lessons that this command of loving our wives teaches us today, right now. Number one, it tells us that marriage does not exist for self-fulfillment. Marriage does not exist for self-fulfillment. If you listen to why people are expressing why they're wanting to get married, it's almost always about selfish reasons. A marriage was not designed and does not exist for self-fulfillment. It's like anything else in life, loving God, loving others, serving them. But number two, the second lesson that we learn from just this first command of leading in love is that no husband is ever exempt for any reason from this command. No husband's ever exempt from this command for any reason. Let me give you a couple. Well, you just don't know my wife. You just don't know my wife. My answer would be, I don't. <laughs> but God does. And he gave you this command to live out with your wife. Yeah, but my wife's changed. She's not the same person that, when, that she was when we got married. My first thought is, who is she? <laughs> Wait, what, what has happened that she's turned into a completely different person? But secondly, this doesn't change the command. Your spouse is still your spouse. If you're married, she's still your spouse. Yeah, but you don't understand. She's really changed. She doesn't even feel like my wife anymore. Well, okay, let's go to some other passages in the Bible. She might not feel your, like your wife, but she is your neighbor, right? Don't get much more neighborly than sleeping in the same bed together. So she's your neighbor, right? And the Lord has called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. So you still are called to love her. Okay. But we don't even sleep together in the same bed anymore. I sleep on the couch every night. Well, she's still your sister in Christ. And the Lord has called you to live out his love with one another in such a way that the world would see your love and would know that you're his disciples. You're still called to love. Yeah, I don't even know if she's saved. I don't even know if she's saved. She's always angry at me. She's always mad. She's always yelling. She just feels like an enemy. Okay, fine. God's called you to love your enemies. There's never a time that you can be exempt from this command, ever. God has called us as men to love our wives. Well, she doesn't love me. She doesn't respect me. She doesn't submit to me. Okay, but this command isn't conditioned upon her actions. It's just conditioned upon your obedience to Jesus. Well, I don't find her attractive anymore. Well, the good news is biblical love isn't primarily conditioned upon beauty or attractiveness. It's an act of the will. Well, my, life, my wife doesn't love me. Biblical love does not find its motive in the object loving you back, but in your commitment to the gospel and living it out with somebody else. Husbands, love your wives. There's simply no way around this command. Now, if you're not married you can still live out this kind of love in the relationships around you. Just look at the people when church is done. 
who take time out of a busy day. Maybe today is not the best example because it's Father's Day and everybody has to leave. But just look around. Look at who is willing to stop what they're doing and just talk with you and listen. Look at who is willing to stop what they're doing and help pitch in to serve and to tear down or to set up. Look at who makes an, an act of the will, a choice, and helps others to benefit from that choice. We are called to lead in love. Number two, how does this practically work itself out? Verse 26, we're called to lead in the word. We're called to lead in love, and number two, we're called to lead in the word. So husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Husbands, do you disciple and mentor your wife in the word? This doesn't have to be a sermon every day. But do you encourage your wife with biblical truth? Do you love her? Do you pray the truths of Scripture over her? We are called as husbands and as fathers to teach those around us to believe like Christians and to behave like Christians. Do you do that? Now, again, if you're not married, you can still do this. You can still disciple others. Men, if you are not married, you can still say, I'm going to choose to lead in the word with somebody around me and disciple them. I'm going to point them to Christ through the word. You can do this. Number three, we're called to lead in righteousness. Lead in love, lead in the word, lead in righteousness. This is verse 27. That he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We must do everything in our power to lead in righteousness, to preserve the righteousness of the woman that God has entrusted to us. Our greatest concern is for our wife's spiritual growth. And men, we cannot lead where we ourselves haven't been. Again, uh, to the women, if you're looking to be married and you want to find a godly man, my encouragement to you would be, how hard does he pursue his own sanctification and how much does he encourage those around him to join him in that race, in that pursuit? Um, just by very nature of the fact that we as Christians gather together on the Lord's Day, uh, we come as beggars to learn from God, to grow in godliness, I would just encourage you, if the Lord's Day isn't a priority for a man that you might be interested in, don't follow after him. If the Lord's Day is not a priority, it's not just going to magically become a priority when you get married. Um, you, you want to go after somebody who says, when the church's doors are open, I'm there. And I'm there until the moment that they close. Lead in righteousness. Men, is your wife more like Jesus in her character because she's married to you? That's ultimately what we are called to do. Lead in righteousness. Number four, we're called to lead in selflessness. Lead in selflessness. This is verse 28 through 30. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. We are members of his body. We serve those around us. We care for those just as we would care for ourselves. We care for those around us. And it goes all the way back up, cemented and anchored in verse 25, that Jesus gave himself up for the church. We do this in serving and selfless service towards our wives, not just in the big things. You ask any husband today, would you die for your wife? And they would say, absolutely, I would. Then you ask 
the wife, does he live for you? In the little things, I know that you'll die for your wife, but will you take the trash out for your wife? In the little things, do you serve selflessly? One pastor says it this way, if a loving husband is willing to sacrifice his life for his wife, he is certainly willing to make lesser sacrifices for her. He puts his own likes, desires, opinions, preferences, and welfare aside, if that is required to please her and meet her needs. He dies to self in order to live for his wife because that is what Christ's kind of love demands. Do you know how to put others before yourself? Do you know how to selflessly serve others? Um, Can I just point to a, a man that many of you know that I think was the embodiment of what selfless service looked like? Do you remember Micah Turner? Micah Turner would go out of his way. I can't tell you the number of conversations that I had with Micah where we were talking. He would see somebody in need, and he'd go, hang on, and then he'd just jump into action, and he'd help somebody. Here, let me get that for you, and then back to talk. He just, he was an example to me of what it looks like to serve and serve and serve and serve, so much so that his wife told me sometimes she has to say stop and eat. Like he wouldn't even eat because he was just serving his family. Stop, you need to eat a meal. And again, those of you who know Micah Turner, you need to eat a meal, man. (laughs) Put some meat on them bones. How do we do this practically? This is so contrary to our flesh, right? Our flesh wants to be served. And sometimes we get married thinking marriage is about you serving me. Let me just give you a couple practical examples. These are from uh, a pastor friend of mine named Tom Pennington. He said this, each day make conscious decisions to put her needs, wants, and desires before your own. Every day, make a conscious decision. What would serve her and do that? That means you have to know what she would want and what would serve her. Romans chapter 15, verse 3 says this. I love these words. Even Jesus did not please himself. Even Jesus didn't please himself. He served. He gave his life as a ransom for many. So when you get home after a long day of work, do you think about yourself or do you think about your wife and your kids? Is your wife the priority? How can I serve her? What would minister most to her? And I'm going to do that. Kent Hughes says it this way. For some men, golf is synonymous with Dante's Paradiso, whereas the entrance to the department store is like the gates of hell, bearing the inscription, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. But if we love our wives, we will forsake the platonic greens for the fiery gates because we value their interests, and love to be with them. Um, one of my favorite examples is, is uh, in a book that Ted Tripp wrote where he talked about living marriage, uh, living selflessness out in marriage. And he says, have you ever gotten ice cream for your wife? So I'm going to get you know, dessert and for us it's ice cream. I'm going to get scoops of ice cream. I'm going to serve my wife. And you go with the best of intentions and you scoop out the ice cream and you put it in the bowls. And as you're walking back with the bowls of ice cream that you intentionally got up to serve to her, you're weighing them. Which, which has more ice cream in it? I'll take that one. I'll give it. We are so selfish by nature. So make conscious decisions every day to put her needs, wants, and desires before your own. Number two, every day put away all of your distractions. Make eye contact with her and have a real conversation with her. I love that. Uh, put, put your phone down. Put away any distractions. Make eye contact with her and ask her, how can I serve you? What would most minister to you in these moments? How can I help? 
Again, if you're not married, men, you can do this. You can live this out with others. How can I serve? How can I help get to know needs and meet those needs? And women, you can do that as well, and you can also watch the men who are doing that. By the way, men, if you're doing this, women, you're doing this at the exact same time, you're just going to look at each other and realize we're both doing this. We're both serving in love, selflessly leading in love. We should get married. <laughs> this, is, this is great. We're both doing this. Number three, discover the way that your wife genuinely knows that you love her and keep doing that consistently. I can't tell you the amount of times in marriage counseling that this is what comes up. Men say, I'm loving my wife with one, two, three, four, five different ways. I'm doing all of these things to love her, and she says I don't love her. And she says, those five things are great. Thanks, honey, but what I really want is these things over here. And once you get on the same sheet of music, once you figure out what really serves them, that makes all the difference. You're pouring all of your energy into serving and you feel like it's going unnoticed, not respected, when really all you're doing is you're loving and you're serving in a way that you think is serving and loving, but it's not ministering to her. Talk to her. What would most minister to you? And ask her that question and then say, don't answer right now. Write it down. Think about it. Because I want to know deep down inside what would minister to you when I get home. What would minister in the morning when I wake up? Number four, open up and disclose yourself to her. Open up and disclose yourself to her. We need to love our wives as our own bodies, nourishing them. Verse 29, cherishing them. So much that we can say about this, but we have to move on. By the way, this is the Father's Day portion of this message. Paul easily could have said, by the way, with nourishing and cherishing, do that with your kids as well. He could have easily said that. Nourish them, care for them, meet their physical needs, cherish them, love them, value them, esteem them, help them know that they're loved and cared for. Just bend out the love that you're giving to your wife to your kids. Even unbelievers understand what cherishing looks like, highly esteeming, highly valuing. In the last century, there was a formal banquet in London. Those who were attending the banquet asked this question, if you could be anyone from history, who would you most want to be? And the answers included a list of all sorts of historical guests. But everybody at the banquet that night was eager to hear what Winston Churchill was going to say. So, he, sitting right next to his wife Clementine, when asked, what great figure of history would you most want to be, said this, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. That's cherishing. Non-believers know this. I just want to be with her. I just want her. Do you nourish and cherish your wife? Finally, number five. I told you we're going to have to do this way too quickly. Lead in love. Lead in the word. Lead in righteousness. Lead in selflessness. And fifth and finally, lead in intimacy. Lead in intimacy. This is verses 31 through 32. There's a quotation here from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, literally one-souled. Every part of who you are is joined with them. We live in a culture that defines intimacy in three letters, S-E-X, but that is not the end all of what intimacy is. That's not primarily what God designed intimacy to be. Intimacy happens when you let somebody into a part of your life that is not available to anyone else. You give part of your soul to somebody else that's not available to anyone else. That's intimacy. By the way, this is where affairs begin. This is where affairs start. 
by mingling your soul with somebody else. Not in a physical sense, but in a relational sense. Intimacy, sharing parts of, of your heart, your emotions, your desires, your wants with somebody else who's not your spouse. What you're saying to your spouse when you are intimate with them, not in a physical sense, but in a marriage sense, what you are saying is you have access to me that no one else does. And by the way, the physical aspect of intimacy is just a representation of that. You're naked and unashamed. You're naked, not in a physical sense. You're naked spiritually. You're naked emotionally. You're naked intellectually. You're naked in every single way, shape, or form. And therefore, physically, you'll be naked as well. And they have access to you that nobody else has. All of this is for the purpose of reflecting, verse, 20, verse 32, the gospel. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Again, it goes all the way back. So, men, please, first of all, all of us should fall short of this. Right? Nobody should walk out of here saying, man, I feel great. I've got all of this down. I'm doing everything perfectly. What a great Father's Day. But we should not say, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I'm just going to try harder. You should try harder, but you don't try harder on your own strength, in your own power. You do it with the example that Jesus has given to you in chapters 1, 2, and 3 and with the foundation of the grace that he's given to you through Christ. You're not doing this to earn his favor. You're doing this because he's lavished his love upon you. You're doing this just as a conduit of his love flowing through you to somebody else. Which again, you don't have to be married to do that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be a conduit of God's love to every single person around you. You don't have to be married to do that. So, marriage doesn't exist primarily for our self-fulfillment. It's primarily for the gospel. And the beautiful thing is, the, since God's the designer of marriage, since he invented it, he says, and I wish we had more time to do this, maybe one day we will, he says, men, this is what I'm calling you to do. And by the way, if you do this, that's what women will respond to. Because I know women, I know men, I invented them, I designed them, I invented marriage, I know how this works. So he says, men, do this, and I promise you women are going to respond to this. Women, do this, and I promise men are going to respond to this. What a great idea that God says, do these things, and they'll respond together. Love, lead in love, lead in the word, lead in righteousness, lead in selflessness, lead in intimacy. When you have a man who leads this way, you have a, a man who images Christ. So men, we should lead this way in our church, period. Regardless of what age you are, regardless of what marital status you are, we should be doing this with one another. One of my favorite moments in my own parenting is when somebody asked Ethan, I was in their presence, what did he wanted to be when he grew up? Now, that's a dangerous question. <laughs> you know Ethan, and you know two-year-olds and three-year-olds, it's a dangerous question. Usually the answer is, I want to be a dump truck, which I don't know how to respond to that. It moved to being a train because he saw Thomas the Tank Engine and thought trains are people too, and so I want to be a train. Then it was a garbage truck driver. Many people would say, no, you got to shoot for something higher. I said, dude, do whatever you want to do. Just do it all to the glory of God. You can be a garbage truck. I'm fine with that. But one of my favorite moments as a parent is when somebody asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he thought, and I got nervous and scared. I wonder what it's going to be this time. And he said, I know what I want to be. I said, I want to be a husband. I want to be a husband. 
And I thought, man, by the grace of God, he has seen something in our church, in the husbands that are here, that that looks attractive. Here's what I don't want. What I don't want for our kids is to read this book. And when they see the word father, that God is our heavenly father, they bristle at that word. I say, I don't like that word. I don't want them to read this book. And when they see that God pursues the church like a husband pursues his bride, for them to say, I don't like that word. I don't like husband. I want them to see in our church relationships where marriage is esteemed, where love is given. Let's not be like the culture. And how many times does the culture say, I've got my old ball and chain here. Let's not do that. Let's give them a picture of marriage where they're envious of what we have because it's built on the grace of God. I just, I, I hope that for our church and I pray that for our church. So we have a picture of what we need to be. We have a goal. We fall short all the time, but at least we have a clear-cut biblical objective. And can I just plead with us? Let's pursue this better today than yesterday and better tomorrow than today. Just incrementally, one step after the other, all for the glory of God. Let's seek to glorify God as husbands and fathers, and let's work as hard as we can. Men, make it your goal to be the man of her dreams. Make it your goal to be the man of her dreams. And make it your goal to be the father of their dreams. But if they had any other choice, they'd say, no, I'd still choose you. Make it your goal by the grace of God to live out Christ-like love. Lead in love, lead in the word, lead in righteousness, lead in selflessness, and lead in intimacy. Let's do that together for the grace, by the grace of God for the glory of our Savior. Father, we thank you so much for Ephesians chapter 5 and the beautiful picture that we have of what marriage is supposed to be. We fall short all the time, and that's why we go back again and again to the cross, which is the foundation of everything. So even as we go there, we realize that in going back for forgiveness, we're really seeing what love looks like to live out to our spouses to our kids, and to those around us. Father, I pray that ultimately, even as we sing and confirm these truths to our hearts, you truly would be our vision. That who you are and what you have done would be everything to us. And that we would live in light of the cross and the love that you have lavished upon us every second of every day to glorify your great name. We pray in your great name. Amen.